if you are new to Colorado, you don't know this, but if you've been here more than three weeks, you would know this. If you're not in church on Sunday and you're a believer, you're probably involved in recreation somewhere, and it's seasonal, and it's in the mountains. Um, that is what Evergreen is like, and it's a delight to have been able to live here for the last 20 years. But others of us would say, you know, um, uh, I would like to watch the uh, the political news shows on Sunday morning. There is something desperately wrong with you. Uh, <clears throat> others would say, uh, you know, I think I would just take a longer time to read the newspaper. I know for half of you, that a news what? Okay. Uh, you can open your phone and go to Denver Post or New York Times and you can find the news almost paper. Uh, some of you would say, I'd like to catch up with housework, the dishes, vacuuming, or whatever. Others of you say, I'm having withdrawal symptoms from Home Depot, and I'd go spend the whole day there. And whatever it is, just understand that we have alternatives. One woman was talking to me about her husband a while back. She said that he woke up one Sunday morning about 7 a.m. and looked at her and said, dear, let's not go to church today. And she asked why. And her husband replies, well, I'm feeling sick. Um, No one really likes me there. And I get nothing out of it. So she replies, you were fine last night. Uh, A lot of people really love you there. And you're always talking about your relationship with God uh, after the sermon is over and we drive home. Oh, and one other reason. You're the pastor. Barb, is that how that conversation went a couple of weeks ago? (laughs) Something like that? Yeah. You know, it happens to all of us. And we understand that, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a rut, and why do we keep doing this? Do we do it just because it is our habit, or do we do it because we love it? If it isn't something that's spectacular every week, why should we love it? Well, understand right now that one of the things we do on a consistent basis is we open God's Word, and I do my very best all throughout the week to prepare, to explain it to you, and talk about how we can live it. And so we are in the Gospel of Mark. The name of the series is the Son of God. That means we are doing Christology. The Gospels are about Jesus Christ. It is the good news that God has sent His Son. And the study of Jesus, taking long looks at him, is called Christology, the study of Jesus. But also why we do that, or while we do that, we understand, we look at Jesus and we see the difference between him and humanity, and we understand what humanity is like, and that's called anthropology. And anthropology has a subset, and uh, an anthropologist told me this about three weeks ago, has a subset, originally psychology was considered just a small part of, of anthropology, but now it, they're two separate uh, sciences. As we go to the Gospel of Mark this morning, whatever you may think about what it means to be in church on Sunday morning, understand that if we look at Jesus, let's ask You, the Son of God, what do you think and what do you do on your Sabbath, which for him was Friday night to Saturday night? That was called the Sabbath for the Jews. And we see that in this next part of the Gospel of Mark, there's two incidences that occur on on the Sabbath. And you often find, it says at the beginning of a passage, that on the Sabbath Jesus was doing this or doing that. 
So this first incident deals with a meal uh, that was after church, probably in the afternoon. And Jesus uh, often was found in church on the Sabbath, but then there's the rest of the day. And that's something that you all consider. What do I do the rest of the day? And so here's what happens to Jesus. I'm in uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. One Sabbath, probably Saturday afternoon, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What's the context of this? Uh, the context is usually when you go to church, you're going home to dinner. That's what I hope to do. Or you go out with somebody. That's probably what you hope to do. And and as, as you go out with somebody, you eat. After church, I eat. I hope you eat too. And so here they are. It's probably after church. Nobody invites them home for dinner. Well, I understand. There's how many of you? Thirteen? Uh, that's going to stretch that soup. So instead, they go out to the grain fields. He has times with his disciples. And one of the things they do is they just walk in into the uh, surrounding, uh, you might say, grain fields. And because they're hungry, they pick parts of grain, just stalks of grain. Chances are what they do is they make, they make it into their lunch. They pick the stalks, pick off the heads, rub them in their hands, warm them up, pop them in their mouth. And you wouldn't say it's a great meal, but at least uh, it, it tends to bite at the hunger a little bit. Now, I want you to know that the issue was not, should you do this? Because some of you are saying they're stealing other people's grain. But Moses had said a long time ago in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 25, if you enter a neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands. But you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. Uh, what he's getting at is if you're going to go into your neighbor's grain field because you're hungry, you're going to pick up a, you know, some wheat or barley, whatever it is, don't come with a John Deere harvester. But instead, just get enough for what you want. The system was called gleaning. It was meant for the poor. The poor would, would not have their own grain fields. And so the harvesters were said, this is not about, uh, you know, the landowners, this is not about maximum efficiency. You know, how many bushels can you get out of each acre? This is about maximum mercy. You want to be known as a merciful landowner, so around the edges, leave some for people to walk through. Apparently this had not yet been plucked, but still the disciples were picking some and using it that way. The gleaning on the Sabbath was the issue because the fact that you're doing it on the Sabbath means that it is a type of work. Now in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, it says, one of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As slaves, the Jews would work seven days a week in Egypt and do whatever the Pharaoh demanded. But now they would set their own schedules and like much of humanity, they might continue to work all seven days so they could get ahead in life. And God tells them from Genesis chapter 1 that he rested on the seventh day. But he also tells them that they're supposed to rest on the seventh day and to keep it holy for them uh, Friday night until sundown uh, Saturday night. And so they ask, well, why are you doing this? It's unlawful. 
You see, there were 39 practices that were considered work for the Sabbath. 39 types of work. And the fourth one was called harvesting. You're not allowed to harvest. Even though you're allowed to glean, Moses said, the interpretation was you're not allowed to glean on a Sabbath because that would be considered work. Now, it's funny. And and again, uh, I don't expect you to know a lot of the Jewish law, and I don't know a lot of it either. But it, it seems like after the exile, when the Jews returned, they were so concerned that they would not do the same uh, things that displease God that caused the exile, that they came back and they said, we're going to be better people. And the way to be better people is to have long lists of the way that we should live. And we're going to develop long lists, especially for how you live on the Sabbath. So not only were there 39 types of work that you were not supposed to do, I'm told that there are over 600 rules to describe what those 39 uh, types of work were. And all of these rules were meant to uh, to keep you holy. In other words, this is God's people telling God's people what the Sabbath should be like and especially what you should not do. Some of you have told me about your homes growing up. That when you grew up, you were told that there'd be no television on Sundays. And you weren't allowed to listen to popular music. Uh, we were confined, now I didn't come from a Christian home, but we were confined to a severe punishment called Lawrence Welk every Sunday. <laughs> and if I never confessed my sins again, that was enough reason to do it, okay? Now, it wouldn't be the same for you, but what Jesus comes out here and says is, wait a minute, you got it all wrong. And so here's how he answers. He answered, first of all, giving an example. God is a lot more flexible, is what he's trying to say, than than what you think. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the holy bread. The holy bread that was only meant for the holy priests. That was my bread, not your bread, David. So he entered the house and he took that bread and it was unlawful for him to do that because it was only lawful for the priest to eat that bread and he gave some to his companions. Now that's just an example of the flexibility of God. But now Jesus makes this great statement that we must focus on. He says in verse 27 and 28, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of over the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When he calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying that I truly am, and I realize that's in capitals in your Bible, but he says I, I really identify with man and I really identify with God. And he's saying that as a man, uh, I, I, I look at it this way, but also as the Son of God, I look at it this way, and the two will be congruent. So what he's trying to get as is after this Sabbath, because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he has authority to say what is good for this day, not the 600 rules or the 39 practices that you shouldn't be doing. Because he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, my father invented this day. He practiced it 
well when he created the universe. And Jesus, as his son, will always live it well. And I am living it well with my disciples as we are in the grain fields. It is not work. And saying to the religious leaders, you have it wrong. Let me just ask this. What activities, what what focus, what thoughts, what attitudes would elevate your life if you practice them consistently on, on the Lord's day? How could you be better in touch with God on the Lord's day in ways that you wouldn't be the other six? That's what it's all about. He's probably out there with his disciples in the grain field saying, what would you think about church? How about that passage they read from Isaiah? Was that a killer or what? I wrote that. Or, 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 you know, what about the reading from the song? You know, he would go through these things with them. But they needed to eat also. So the first incident where he's in a conflict with the religious leaders is a meal after church. But the second one, not too much long afterwards, is a miracle that occurs at church. What miracles at church? God at work at church? Can't be. Here's how he reads. He says, uh, in, beginning in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Another time, doesn't say soon after, but sometime in his ministry, another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Notice what they're looking for. It's not, does he have the power to heal someone with a shriveled hand? He's already proven that. He's helped, he's made a man walk. He's, the, the issue was not, could Jesus perform this miracle? The issue was, would he do this on the Sabbath? Let's go back again. You are allowed to save a life, if you're a Jew, on the Sabbath. If someone gets, you know, covered by boulders or falls into a well, you're allowed to go and draw that man out of the well. You're allowed to save a life to keep someone from dying. But once that body's out of the well, don't clean it up. That's work. Once that body is out of the well, don't put on a bandage. That's work. And you shall not work on the Sabbath. The list just get longer and longer and longer. And so Jesus takes this man and he says, there's an object lesson here. There's an object of God's power and love that I want to teach you. And this man is going to be the object lesson. Does God affirm good deeds on the Sabbath? That's the issue. Does God say it's okay to do good on the Sabbath? Certainly good work is better than bad work, than evil. And so here's what Jesus says. Then Jesus asked them in verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill it? But they remained silent. They remained silent because they realized by this time, every time they have an argument against Jesus, he wins, they lose. By the way, that's still true with me. Every time I have an argument with Jesus, I find out what he's written. I go, Shh, I thought I knew that. And I don't. Uh, 
I know it. Maybe I can quote it. I just don't know how to live it. So they're not winning, you know, in their arguments with them. So they're just going to stand and watch. And what they're hoping for is they'll have a gotcha moment. Look what he did. We are fault finders and we're going to watch him and watch him and watch him until we can find what he's done wrong. So he says, it is okay to do a good work. It's okay to save a life. You're the ones who wrote it's it's not okay to bandage it. God says you should be doing good works. Well, one of the two things that have probably impressed me most deeply in my walk with Jesus in my 20 years here at Bergen Park Church, the one I mentioned last week about It's Not About You from Rick Warren. The other one was this going through this series called Experiencing God. And in that series, Experiencing God, uh, we read from John chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus, as again in John, where he was being criticized for doing miracles on the Sabbath because it was work. Jesus responds to them and he says, My father is always at work to this very day. uh, Okay. Six days he creates the whole universe. One day he rests. Apparently that was the last time. If I've got it right. That was the last time. Now he is at work all the time. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are at work all the time, 24-7, every month, every day, every night. They just continue to work. So God does not, Jesus says, take a day off. Therefore, my consistently healing people on the Sabbath is a part of God's work. Yes, he rested on that last day of creation, but now he is always at work. The Holy Spirit is at work uh, in lives today. And to you religious leaders, the Holy Spirit would love to be at work in you today, but maybe not if you just want to live by this long list of, of, of do's and don'ts. So God is at work right now in our worship. He's at work as you go home. He wants to be at work in your home. God is even at work at your work. God wants to be at work in your marriage and in your family. God wants to be at work in your lives at all time and at all places because he's always at work and why not you? And he is at this place at this moment right here at Bergen Park Church and he wants to do a work in each one of our hearts. And it goes far beyond the quality of what I deliver to you or the worship team gives you. He just wants to work and get through into your lives. So he looks at this man with a disfigured um, uh, hand and he puts him in front uh, of the crowd and uh, and then he heals it. And, uh, you know, everybody is amazed. But the religious leaders who say, there he, there he goes again, he's done work. I ask you the question, which is the harder to heal? A withered hand? Or a dead heart. That's a easy question to answer. Dead heart is always hard. So he heals this man, but it only causes the religious leaders to become more conflicted, more set against the work of Jesus. 
You know, we're, we're finishing this series, uh, or this uh, five incidences where Jesus is in conflict always with the religious leaders. He's in conflict because he claims to have the authority to forgive sins at the beginning of chapter 2. He's in conflict because he invites Levi, uh, 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 who was a tax collector, and um, and Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Hallelujah. I'm sure, sure glad he is, because I need him. Uh, I need all the friends I can get. He's... Uh, he, he's he, he's criticized because he's feasting. He's going to parties rather than he's not fasting. He's criticized when he claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's criticized when he says, my, my father has always worked on the Sabbath. They just keep finding ways to go after him. And for Jesus, it's not about what not to do on the day of rest, but what God is already doing. So the result is the people who are not religious leaders love Jesus. But the religious leaders are just stuck within their list. And they're so stuck that that phrase, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that they go to the political leaders who are not necessarily religious, and they form an alliance with them. It says in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, the supporters of King Herod, how they might kill Jesus. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, they are trying to kill Jesus because they believe that... uh, 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 Jesus cannot be God's Messiah, the one who has come to save Israel, and Jesus cannot be God's king. That belongs to Herod. Now, there's a model for us here. And, and the model is simple. Not just how you spend your, your, your Sundays, but how you, you know, how you choose to live your life. What does God really want our lives to be? I want to say this, church attendance is good, and if you're coming to church on a consistent basis, don't stop. Continue. But do you come both prepared and eager to see, and I'm not trying to do a new list for you here, to see what God wants to do? Do you come with eyes that are saying, Lord, what is it today that you, you know, where are you going to take me today as I follow you? So I want to say, go to church, but go to church in a way that you're exhibiting more freedom and fewer expectations. If you've been a Christian more than a decade, and I mentioned this last uh, two weeks ago, if you've been a Christian more than a decade, the chances are that you have made lists. The chances are you have. It's just human nature. That's our anthropology. We say that we please God by doing a series of things. I'm asking you, instead of working on comparisons and standards and expectations, come with just two thoughts in mind. On Sunday, I look forward to connecting with God. Somehow, some way, I want to connect with Him. I want a heart attitude as I come of neediness and dependence on Him. And then secondly, come to connect with God's people. Somehow, some way, say, the people of God are going to be my teachers through maybe not just what they say, but through who they are. Friends, you need to know this. There's a ton of hurt going on right now at Bergen Park Church. There is illness. There is hurt feelings. Uh, there is uh, reconciliation that's needed between people. There is just a ton of stuff. And as I walk with people 
who are trying to follow Jesus through these chapters of their lives. Uh, these entire seasons that are uh, fairly disappointing and disillusioning. Their faith encourages me just by hearing their stories and being around them. There are times in which I say, I don't even know how to pray for you. How would you like me to pray? I cannot imagine that I would ever go through something as deep and as serious as you're going through now. Come with a sense of more freedom to lives and less expectations on others. Also come with a, a, an idea that what you want to do is you want to do more good on the Sabbath and, and don't come with any list. The religious have a goal of obeying a list of do's and don'ts on Sunday. Burn the list. Look for ways to do good. We figure it takes somewhere between 30 and 40 people, most of them volunteers, to make church happen here every Sunday at Bergen Park Church. Last week, we increased that because, and, and here's you know ways you can look at it, um, we served over 500 pancakes at Bergen Park Church last week. That's something that you know you'd see on a sign in front of McDonald's. Over 500 served, or five made, I guess, and consumed. Okay, um, that that was amazing. And for the cooks, I applaud you because you didn't know that you'd be making that many pancakes. Uh, we could also say, as we looked at the church and the children were kept in the church for the whole service, that. Uh, two years ago at our old facility, we would have had to have two services because each service would have been full, and that's what we had last Sunday. And we could say that. But here's what we're saying. We saw three testimonies of three people coming back to faith in Christ, and they asked to be baptized here. And that's what counts. That's what we celebrate. You see, God is at work, and the stories of their lives left allowed us to leave extremely encouraged by what he was doing. Um, I was reading this week the story of Catherine Butler from the East Coast, probably out of Boston, but it didn't say. She's a critical care surgeon. Uh, who one night in the emergency room lost three lives, two young teenagers to gunshots, and one husband and wife to a home invasion where they were beaten to death by baseball bat, leaving the four-year-old as an orphan. She said after that shift, she took a drive out to the Connecticut River walked across a footbridge over the Connecticut River and considered just throwing herself off. She goes, am I going to, you know, is this what I'm going to face? Is life really this miserable? Things went from bad to worse. She didn't throw herself off, but just uh, not too long later, her husband lost her job and they needed to live on both incomes. And so her husband, of you know, after losing his job, he says, I'm going to go to church and see if I can find out what life is all about. And he goes to church, and instead of finding what life is all about, he finds Jesus. And he gives his life to Jesus. He commits his, his life. He puts his trust in Jesus. And then he says, uh, <clears throat> uh, he goes back to his wife. And she uh, 
he, he says, come to church with me. So she comes to church, but just that, that terrible sort of worldview that you develop, taking care of dying people, especially those dying from violence. She said, all I could do was stare out that window. And so she was staring out a window, and God just wasn't getting through to her the way that God was getting through um, her husband. So her husband finds that God is at work on Sundays. She does not. She goes back to her work, and she has transitioned out of the emergency room to uh, sort of a, you might say, intensive care unit. And there she is caring for a man with a severe brain injury, and he's got in a vegetative state. And his wife and friends are always around praying for this man and believing that he can recover. She knows better. The wife relates to Catherine, last night God told me my husband would be healed. And she would smile at the wife and admire her blind trust. The next day, on duty, that wife called her over and said, yell into my husband's ear, move your toe. She yelled into his ear, move your toe. No toe moved. So she says, let me, you know, the wife says, let me try it. Maybe he knows my voice. She yells, and that toe moves. Two weeks later, that man is sitting up, being restored. And the neurologists say, um, we have no explanation for this. It is truly a miracle. God works on Tuesdays as well as Sundays. God works in Catherine's life because it took a Tuesday for her to see what her husband discovered on a Sunday. God is at work. He works weekends. He works every day. And he's working today. And he wants to work in you as you have come for worship. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a marvelous God you are. We stop right now and we give you thanks for we are aware, not just from other people's stories, but from our own, that that's how you spent your day, watching God work. This day, would you help us to connect with you and to connect with your people, to allow it to be such a marvelous moment that our lives are enriched and we can say, thank you, God. I'm glad I was here. Father, now we also remember the greatest miracle and the greatest work you've ever done, sending your son to the cross, sending him there so that we could have this assurance that your love for us will never be broken. You accept us through your son's death on the cross. So we know that our sins are forgiven and there is therefore nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. As we remember you through communion, for many of us it'll be, you know, we've had hundreds of communions, but we ask that you would be at work even now in people's lives. 
not because of how many times they've done it, but because they are doing it this time. Lord, do your work, because we know you're at work wanting to revitalize our hearts and our walks with you. And God's people said, 